Welcome to Top Shelf at the Merrick Library with your host, Carol Antak. Oh my goodness, listeners, I am jumping right into this episode because I am so, so very happy to be hosting returning guest, Edgar Award-winning author, best-selling author, Angie Kim, to talk about her brand new, yes, her brand new bestseller, on shelves right now everywhere, Happiness Falls, Angie Kim. Thank you so much. You are here. I can't believe you're here. You're back on the show. Thank you so much for coming back. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I feel like this was one of the first podcast interviews I did for Miracle Creek. Like in the first week that it was out or like the week before it was out or something like that. So you know that you always have a special place in my heart. And I am so thrilled to be back for this, my sophomore, you know, hopefully not a slump novel. <laughs> Definitely not a slump novel, as all social media and everything on TV indicates. When I think about going back, well, this was episode 27 in 2019, and here we are, oh. episode 132 in 2023. Yeah. And I remember that interview, and I actually listened to it this week, and I thought, oh my gosh, listen to how I said, you know, it's just so... It's just, <laughs> so funny to go back and think I'm definitely not listening to that because I will just be mortified yeah <laughs> not nearly as mortified as I am <laughs> but that is okay I mean this has been a heck of a book tour for you I've been following along on social media with all your events on television, as I said, getting the GMA nod and then the NPR interview with Scott Simon. Oh, my gosh. Angie, what has all of this been like? I love him so much. It's been amazing. Yeah, no, it's been a dream. I was so lucky with Miracle Creek at all the amazing things that happened for that book. And I feel like with this one, it's just been building on top of that. And... What's been most important to me are getting the booksellers and the librarians and their support. So I have been so excited about getting the Library Reads nomination, Indie Next, and the Barnes and Noble Book Club. And of course, as you say, the TV stuff. I was just on live TV this past Saturday morning. <laughs> I was so stressed out from that. And I now feel like, okay, I let's hope that there, it's a long time before I have to do live TV again, because that was really stressful. But you, you didn't miss a beat. The whole interview was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And my publishing team has been just a dream to work with. It's just been unbelievable. Just so lucky and so grateful. So... And listeners, just a reminder, after all of my tremendous excitement hosting Angie Kim again, Happiness Falls is the book that we're talking about today. This book has a first sentence that has been talked about. You think Angie Kim's been talked about everywhere? This sentence has been talked about everywhere. I made it a Sunday sentence on Twitter a while back, but it's the first thing you see on a lot of the marketing pieces. And then you open up that book and you read that first sentence and that sentence is, we didn't call the police right away. Angie, 
<laughs> That's as good a point as any to ask you to tell listeners a spoiler-free version of Happiness Falls. Absolutely. Happiness Falls is a story about a family in crisis. It opens with the father of this biracial Korean-American family going missing. And the only person who might know what happened who was with him is 14-year-old Eugene, his youngest son, who has a rare genetic condition called Mosaic Angelman Syndrome and cannot speak. And so in order to figure out what happened to the father, did he leave them? Was this intentional? Is he in huge trouble? Is he even alive? All of these answers to these questions and also to protect Eugene himself from the police who are very suspicious about what might have happened because of the biases that they have against people who can't talk and who have motor difficulties like Eugene does. The family really has to pull together and come together and learn to truly connect and communicate with each other. I would love to know, after you finish Miracle Creek, and now you're thinking about writing your second book, and you start thinking about Happiness Falls, where does that come in for you to decide to start writing this book? And were you writing it during COVID? What was happening as you were writing this book? What was going on in the background? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, this family has been with me for over 10 years. I wrote a short story, one of the first short stories that I wrote when I started creative writing in my 40s. And it was about this family in the same narrator, Mia's voice. Mia is our narrator, our first person, very voicey narrator for this book. And she is Eugene's older sister. And she has a twin brother, John. And this family has just been with me. I couldn't shake them, even as I was writing other stories. And even through the writing of Miracle Creek, there was a version of Miracle Creek I was trying to write where I had Mia and John, the two twins, who were actually like the PIs, who were grown-up PIs, mm. and writing from their perspective what happened with this strange hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber exploding and killing people, and it just didn't quite work, and so I abandoned that and went with a seven POV story that became Miracle Creek. But they've always been with me. And even as I was doing things like guiding my own kids through the college admissions process, I would be thinking to myself, oh, I wonder where Mia and John are applying to school. I wonder what their college admissions essay is about. I wonder if they're going to the same school. I wonder how they're doing, you know, these things. And so they've just been with me for a long time. So I think it's natural that when I was on tour for Miracle Creek and people kept on asking me, oh, what are you working on next? I had two different story ideas, but I kept on gravitating toward this one. At first, I didn't think it was a missing person story. I just thought it was a story about a family, a really quirky, likable family a bunch of philosophers doing these happiness experiments and thinking about the relativity of happiness and helping their dad to carry out experiments to prove his theories to help him get a book published. So that's what I thought I was writing when I first thought of reintroducing these characters through a second novel. 
I love hearing that. So when did you decide it was something different? I think it was when I started writing in earnest, right around the paperback launch of Miracle Creek, which was supposed to be April of 2020. And it was, but it's just that because of COVID, everything got completely canceled. And I started thinking about, okay, I really want to get back into actually writing. So all along, I had been free writing. So I knew sort of more about this family. And what happens, I think, is that, and this happened with Miracle Creek too, is that where I start is with stories, little vignettes about these characters that I am trying to get to know in the free writing process before I even know anything about the plot or what's happened or what's propelling the story. I just know that I have this universe of characters and I write stories about them in free writing form. I kind of fall in love with these little short stories. And I think this happened with Miracle Creek too, is that when I actually think of the skeleton of the plot, I think of that central question as the through line for the whole story, of course. Like in Miracle Creek, it was the courtroom drama, the murder trial of who set this fire. Here, it's what happened to the father, this missing person. But to me, for the readers and for myself, it's that mystery, that central question is almost a Trojan horse. So it's the way into this world that keeps me wanting to write to find out what happened to the father and hopefully keep the readers turning the pages. But I'm really so interested in these little stories that I came to discover when I was in the pre-writing process of learning about these characters. And I find myself working them in. And those are sort of the gems and the darlings that I just need to figure out how to work into the story. Mia being one of these characters that you've been living with for 10 years, I feel like as a reader, I I don't know her, but I really felt like I connected with her in so many different ways. I just, I loved her. And I'm a little obsessed with sentences as everybody on the podcast knows. You give her knock out sentences. And one of them, the sentence is, I believe there's a fine line, if any, between optimism and willful idiocy. So I try to avoid optimism altogether, lest I fall over the line mistakenly. Yeah. Talk about that sentence. Talk about giving it to Mia. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the first sentences that I actually wrote when I sat down to draft the novel. And then I think actually the real first sentence, we didn't call the police right away, came after that during the same free writing session. I just thought, yeah, she's still the same character and the same voice that I remember from my earlier short story. And it just kind of made me fall in love with her completely. I knew that this book was about happiness. I didn't know where each of the characters falls in that line of being an optimist or pessimist or what they think about happiness theories and all of that sort of stuff. It just kind of came. And the other sentence that's in that same paragraph is, I don't believe in optimism. And I just thought, you know what? That is Mia. That is so her at the core. And I just love this character who's just sort of pessimistic. And she's funny, but in a very dry, sarcastic kind of way. She's so opinionated. And she can be really annoying at times. And she knows that she can be annoying. And she talks 
talks about that and she talks about how her mind goes all over the place and she's so hyperlexic and she knows that there are people who don't really like her way of thinking and so she actually puts in footnotes a lot of her side points as a way of peasing that so she's really trying hard she's working on it she's working on being more likable like her mom's telling her to be and you know and to focus Mia you know all that kind of stuff so her way of compromising is saying okay I know that I have a tendency to go off on these points I'm going to really try hard to stick to the point, but if I can't help it and I end up doing that, then I'm going to put them in footnotes so that readers who don't like those things, like my mom and like my twin brother, John, they can just skip right over them. And that's okay. I'm not going to put anything hugely important to what happened. These are side points. So I think she's being kind of considerate and, you know, (laughs) doing that work of which her mom would be proud of her for, of really trying to curb her impulses there. The other thing that, and you talked about this in the very beginning, you talked about the first sentence, we didn't call the police right away. A lot of people have talked about that sentence as just what a hook it is, because you're like, why did they need to call the police? But to me, what I really love about the first sentence is that it gives you a clue as to the tone of the narration. She is telling the story after having gone through everything. And she is telling the story from the perspective of someone who has a lot of regret and a lot of thoughts of what if I'd done something a little bit differently. So she has a lot of thoughts of like, oh, if only I'd done this differently. I think about that moment when I said this or I did this because given what comes after, I now realize that that was the wrong thing to do. So there's a lot of regret and a lot of introspection. She is in confessional mode here with the readers. You flip the trope about the mother missing, the sister missing, the daughter missing, the wife, the woman is missing. But in this case, it's the dad, the father, the husband. He's the one who goes missing. He's a recent stay-at-home dad. And all of the things that go into being a stay-at-home parent, you put onto Adam. Talk about making that decision to make him the focus of the disappearance. I think in missing person mysteries, it's kind of become a trope that the person who's missing is always a woman, girl in peril. And when there is a missing person who's a man, it turns out to be like some espionage thing, like international spy thriller (laughs) or be mafia related (laughs) or, you know, something like that. These are these tropes. And my author friends and I will sometimes chuckle about these and we will make fun of ourselves as writers writing these stories in these ways. And I did really want to sort of interrogate that. Why is it that we always focus on that? And why are missing person mysteries so popular? For me, too, when I hear about a person being missing, even if it's on the local news, I'm immediately intrigued. And Mia talks about this a lot in the book, that one of the reasons is that missing person mysteries are the deepest mysteries that you can have because we don't know anything. Mm -hmm. At least in the homicide, you know that somebody's dead. If there's a body, you know how they were killed or whatever. So you're trying to figure out other facets of what happened. 
But in a missing person mystery, it can be anything. They could be being horribly tortured right now, or they could be having a beautiful, fun vacation somewhere on some island because they decided to just go away and they forgot to tell their family about it, or they did tell their family, or they tried, but then a dog ate the note, right. you know, which happened recently, which made me really upset. But anyway, <laughs> so that kind of stuff. And so I felt like that was something that I wanted to address by having it be different and having the person who disappeared be the anchor of the family. And I think we all realize that when the anchor of the family is like the stay-at-home mom, sometimes nobody notices because they're the ones who are supposed to do the noticing and keeping track of everybody and all of that sort of stuff. And so I wanted to see what would happen here if it was the father, how readers would react to that. Would they find that even plausible? Um, you know, how I would react to it, how the police would react to it. So I thought that was really an interesting thing. And the other thing that I wanted to do about the missing person being a man is that often with stay-at-home moms being the ones who are missing, and of course, in Missing Person Mysteries, you start learning all these things about the missing person that you didn't know before, and those become the red herrings and things like that. And one of the things about the stay-at-home parent, and I've seen this from my own kids, is that so many people don't see them as real people. They see them only as their mom or in that domestic context. Mm -hmm. And so that when things get revealed about this other side of their personality or life or interest that they had, it's such a shock because so many people don't ask about that, don't realize that that's there for their mom. And I thought, what would happen if that were the stay-at-home dad? Would people have the same reaction? Do kids really think of stay-at-home dads in the same way? And my husband is a stay-at-home dad. He retired about 10 years ago. And I hadn't really thought about it. So I, I did what I do when I don't know what to think about something, which is turn to writing and figure it out that way. I love what you do with Adam and his story, because it reconditioned my way of thinking about what's going on behind the scenes and really trying to avoid the spoilers on, <laughs> on that. No, 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 it's okay. We've been talking about happiness. So for the readers that dad is obsessed with and very passionate about happiness theories, trying to quantify happiness, trying to maximize it, because he's a huge believer in the relativity of happiness and in this idea that happiness is not absolute. It's not fixed. It is the result of whatever your experience as compared against your expectations and against your baseline view of your life, whatever that may be. And so that's something that he really believes in. And he's been kind of experimenting and the family comes to find out about that. And I wanted that discussion to come through Mia also because the reader, like Mia, then gets to discover it bit by bit and process it in the same way that Mia is and try to figure out, like, first of all, does this have anything to do with why he went missing? Secondly, how do his theories, do they apply to the way that the family is living this 
horrible experience that they're going through. I won't say more than that here, but I really do think that that's something that people really love and experience. And I've been really lucky in that a lot of really generous blurbers who are some favorite authors of mine have said a lot of nice things about it. And one theme that has come through in a lot of these blurbs is about how that mindset about the way that you look at happiness and expectations and how you view the baseline of your life can really change your outlook and can really change the way that you consider your life. I've been doing that a lot in the last couple of weeks with this book coming out, really trying to make sure that I enjoy the process by having high expectations and allowing myself to have hopes and those fantasies and things like that of what could happen. But at the same time, trying to make sure that I form my baseline view and that I keep my baseline view of myself as an author. Because really my baseline is, with respect to writing, is being a writer who starts a story, has no idea if I'm going to be able to finish it. That's been so important to me. And the whole idea of having a happiness quotient, and it did reset my thinking about that. So it helped me in a in a completely therapeutic way that I was not expecting to sort of step back and re-examine my own things, like my own stuff, which then brings me to the title, right? If we've got the happiness quotient, we know that Eugene has a happiness syndrome when we'll get to that. And then you've got happiness falls. I mean, I love the title. I love the ambiguity of that title. Was that always going to be your title? No, my title was always going to be happiness quotient. I was so proud of myself. I thought this is the perfect title. How can anybody not love this title? People love talking about happiness and happiness theories are very, very popular right now. And then all of a sudden my editor was like, yeah, so the salespeople like aren't loving happiness quotient. But then my UK editor, Angus Cargill, who is Ishiguro's editor for Never Let Me Go, who I think had a hand in that title too, said, why aren't we saying happiness falls? And we were like, that's intriguing because it has lots of different meanings. And so it just seemed like it really flowed together in such a beautiful way. And I just love the lyrical feel of that. And also with the cover, with this spiral falling down, it just, uh, it just gave me those. Yeah. Fantastic cover. In both of your novels, you focus on family and not just family, but the challenges of immigration. There's also a mystery in both your novels. In Miracle Creek, then one of the members in the family, Henry, he has autism. And in Happiness Falls, Eugene has Angel Man or Happiness Syndrome. Both books focus on using language in all forms. I love what Gabrielle Zevin says. She says, the book is a brilliant, satisfying, compassionate mystery that is as much about language and storytelling as it is about a missing father. I mean, both your books, you do that. That struggle for communication covers so many things. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So the struggle for communication is something that's so personal to me and so foundational to who I am as a person because I am a Korean immigrant and I came to this country at the age of 11 in middle school, which is a horrible time anyway. (laughs) 
And back in Korea, I felt like a smart, gregarious girl with lots of friends. And then all of a sudden, I come here and I don't speak the language. I didn't speak English at all. And it took me a couple years to uh, learn it and become fluent. And I came to feel like a pabo overnight. Pabo is a Korean word for a stupid person. And you think about not speaking a language as being frustrating. And I'm sure we've all had that when you're traveling in a country and you don't understand and people you can't communicate. It's so frustrating. But it went beyond that to shame. I really felt embarrassed that I couldn't speak this language, even though there was a good reason. You know, I kept on telling myself, no, 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 there's no reason you should be expected to speak this language, but I didn't believe it myself. And I think it's because we as a society have a very deeply seated fundamental assumption that equates oral fluency with intelligence. Since that assumption was in me also, when I couldn't speak, I felt stupid. I felt ashamed. So when I found out much later as a mom about a group of people with autism, Angelman syndrome, lots of different types of conditions that are considered neurological and also cognitively based, first and foremost. And those people could not speak. And I found out that some of these people who had been assumed their entire lives to be truly nonverbal, meaning without words, in their heads, without thoughts, that they actually did have words. They did have thoughts. They just had no way to express them. And once they started learning through these motor therapies that enabled them to learn how to point to letters on a letter board, letter by letter, very painstaking process, and thereby communicate Their parents, doctors, therapists were floored because they found out that they had been locked in all this time. They had beautiful thoughts. They had taught themselves to read. They knew all these things about the world. And when they started communicating, these beautiful, fully formed thoughts would come out of them. It's been amazing to see that in the people that I know and have come to know since writing this book who fall under that description. I just can't tell you, based on my own experience, having had just a taste of that, right? A very limited taste of that in one language only being limited for a couple years And then realizing there are people who have been experiencing this their entire lives in all formats, it just lured me. And so I think that's one of the reasons why I really focus so much on non-speakers and people who have trouble communicating in, you know, lots of different ways, whether it be because they are immigrants and they don't speak the language or because of these types of disabilities. And it's so beautifully done in this book. And I think you had a recent on your tour recently, didn't you? You had a student come in. Talk about that a little bit. I teach several groups of non-speakers, most of whom are autistic, creative writing. We have several Zoom sessions and we also have an in-person session that the summer session just ended. And the summer session had 10 students that were in person and it was an amazing experience. 
One of my students who is one of the first people that I actually got to sit down and have this one-on-one conversation with, as far as me talking orally like this, you know, speaking, and then him responding on a letter board. He's a 25-year-old extraordinary young man named Ian Nordling. So he has been my conversation partner and part of the people that I have been on the panel with for two of my launch events. He was up on the stage with me and we had wonderful moderators and he was in conversation with me and he used a transparent letter board so Mm -hmm. that people could see his fingers actually pointing to letter by letter because it's a very slow, painstaking process. So for most of the time while I was in conversation with a different moderator, he was spelling out words on the side because he is very, very good at sort of focusing like that. But a few times when he was saying something directly on point to what we were discussing, the communication partner who was holding up the letter board for him actually read out the letters out loud, like individually as, and I have all of those on videos. I can't wait to share them. And actually, Good Morning America, the day after my launch, Juju Chang of ABC News came down to Northern Virginia and we did a one-on-one sit down And she also sat in on one of these classes. And so they got footage. And I thought the camera crew, like some of them started tearing up. Mm -hmm. Juju herself was like in near tears because it really calls into question the assumptions that we have about non-speakers and about people with autism and with disabilities and how they look and how they act. And based on those, what we assume about their intelligence and their cognitive functioning. Beautiful, beautiful work. Just the amount, the amount of work that you've done to open this up for all of us is just, um, thank you. Thank you. Really something, Angie, just, just beautiful, beautiful work. Any books or things that you've read that helped you in the writing of this book in any way? The books that I had next to me as I was writing this particular one, there are so many, but I'll mention just a few. So one is along the lines of what we were just talking about with respect to non-speakers is Naoki Higashida's The Reason I Jumped. When it came out, the author was then a 13-year-old young man with autism who had some words, but they were unreliable. So he would, one of the things that he shares is sometimes he says no when he means yes. So he couldn't really rely on the spoken words that he had in order to truly express what he was communicating. And so it's a series of essays by this young man, and he's Japanese, and it was translated by David Mitchell, who is one of my favorite authors, and his wife, K.A. Yoshida. And so I highly recommend this book. Another wonderful one that I loved was Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. I just love the regretful tone and the voice in that. So I really read that book probably at least a little tiny paragraph every day as I was writing Happiness Falls because the reminder to myself of that tone that 
nostalgic, regretful tone, and the examining what is happening so closely after the events have transpired. Another one that I love is Tim O'Brien's "In the Lake of the Woods," which is a missing person story, but really not. The protagonist's wife goes missing at the beginning of the story. We have no idea if. He killed her. If she ran away, if she went out boating and just got lost, if she went into the river, went for a swim, and drowned. Who knows? There are so many different possibilities, and Tim O'Brien does a masterful job of exploring those. But his real purpose is using that missing person mystery and the police investigation that ensues to explore the complexities in their marriage.、Mm. So I loved that one. Another one that I had. That I loved is Anne Patchett's Bel Canto. It's just one of those stories that I just turn to whenever I'm having any problems whatsoever with writing. I just because I just can read anything from it and then just get inspired. And in fact, her Tom Lake is one that I actually started reading very recently when I was at Interlochen, which is a little town outside Traverse City, where she says she doesn't say name Interlochen, but she has said. That Tom Lake is based on a little town like that area outside of Traverse City, so I thought it was the perfect place for me to start reading it when I happened to be there, dropping off my youngest son for high school there, which is actually my own alma mater. <laughs> And then the final one that I'll mention is Chemistry by Wakey Wang, which is one of my favorite books of all time. And I just love the voice in that. It's a young, overworked narrator. She's very quirky. She's studying for a prestigious PhD in chemistry that will make her Chinese parents proud. She hopes. And it is written in little vignettes, little tiny scenes, little morsels that the reader really has to work to try to figure out together. But it is just funny. It's quirky, and I loved reading that over and over again. My God, these are amazing recommendations, and I will put all of those on the podcast page for this episode. Where's the best place for people to find out about all of your upcoming events? Okay, so for my events, I do have a tour card that is on the social media on Instagram. Probably the most reliable is my website, which is angiekimbooks dot com. The events page is definitely one that we are keeping updated, and I am so excited to see people there. Please, please come out. I would love to meet readers and talk and answer your questions. I also love doing book clubs. So if you are in a book club and would like me to just call in for a couple of questions, anything like that. I love to try to make as many as I possibly can. So again, my contact information is on my website. I mean, listeners, you just you just heard that. Reach out, send that email. Happiness falls by today's guest, the one and only Angie Kim is on <laughs> shelves right now, everywhere, and the audio is fantastic. So if you don't have a chance to read, you get the opportunity to listen. It is truly a wonderful cast that makes up that audio. So you can grab a copy of both at your local library or your local independent bookstore. Happiness Falls is published by Hogarth Books. 
Angie Kim, I don't know how to thank you enough for joining us, all of us here today on Top Shelf. I am beyond appreciative that you took the time and I hope you will come back for whatever comes next. I will always say yes to you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a treat. Thank you so, so much for highlighting this book and me. Thank you. Well, the love is real. What can I say? Listeners, the love is real for all of you as well. Thank you so much for joining both of us today. Remember to follow Top Shelf wherever you find your podcasts. For the latest and the greatest at the Merrick Library, check out our website at merricklibrary.org. Thanks to Merrick Library Director Dan Chusmere, Assistant Director Diane Bondi, and the Merrick Library Board of Directors for getting us off the ground and on to the airwaves. Until the next time, remember to keep us on your top shelf.